It's gonna be scary. Not for us. All engine running. Lift off. on Thompson steps right, shoots for the win of three. He got it. He got it. Same my first rodeo. To the basket, turns Schroeder around. Russell Westbrook's house, the three and the lead. You betcha. Covington biggest shot of the game, and he hits it. The corner, PJ Tucker. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every day. As always, I am your host, Jackson Gatlin. You can catch me on Twitter at JT Gatlin. Of course, our show is also on Twitter at Locked on Rockets. And by now, you guys know the drill. If you appreciate what we do here, hit that subscribe button. It's not a YouTube video. I'm not going to ask you to like and subscribe. Just hit that subscribe button. Maybe drop us a review, leave us some stars. And above all else, share the uh, share the podcast. Wow, I'm stumbling over my words already. Share the podcast on all your social media platforms. I would sincerely appreciate it. So we will continue the conversation with Roosh Williams starting right now. I think, and this is a stretch, right? I do agree that I think Chris Paul, you know, would have been the, I guess, the ideal, you know, running mate for James Harden. And we saw that. We basically saw what was almost a perfect scenario flourish in 17-18, except for obviously the hamstring that we all, I mean, I feel like hamstring has become like a top 10 word for a lot of Rockets fans in the past couple of years. It's just, it feels like anytime a sports conversation comes up, it's, yeah, except for the CP3 hamstring. Um but I still have hope and really think that this Harden-Westbrook dynamic can, it might be able to eclipse the CP3-Harden dynamic. I, I, you know, Obviously, it, you can play the what-if game, and if CP3 was younger, if we had been able to pair him and Harden sooner, you know, get them in their primes together, whatever you want to, that hypothetical, I think that what we did get was amazing franchise best 65 wins, you know, a hamstring away from, from a title. I think that James Harden and Russell Westbrook still can potentially eclipse that. And I think that their best chance to strike wasn't really this year. I think it's next year. I think it, this was like the, the year that they really need to mesh and figure out how to play, play together again. Am I, am I off base here? No, I mean, I think it can work. I still think it can work. Um, I'm not saying that I'm not saying it won't work or that it, that it can. I'm just saying that, um, you know, as far as comparing him directly to Chris Paul, the one thing that Chris Paul has over him, well, I think he has several things over him and Russ has several things over Chris Paul, but I think the, a big differentiator is in CP3's advantage in favor is that um, his, his defensive IQ is such that he can quarterback a defense, right? He keeps communication alive. He That's true. Things. Yeah. He knows, he knows how to glue a defense together as a team to the best extent that he can. Um, whereas Russ, when he wants to, can play great individual defense, but he's not a good team defender. Um, oftentimes breaks down. I don't know how much – I can't even remember much of this season because I haven't gone back to look at it. So I'm not necessarily talking about him as a rocket, just his career. Um, I've seen a lot of defensive breakdowns from him. Um, he definitely struggled earlier this season, and as he like got used to like the switch everything scheme, if you know, I remember early this season, like it felt like every game recap that I did, I was like, "Yep, Russ had you know two three possessions where he completely was just lost on defense, and then those started to trim away, right? Those you you saw like a noticeable decline in those to where it got back, it got down to this point where he really felt like he was fitting in with the team, like as far as like the team's defensive identity at least. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And, we, you know, they, they started playing good defense for a stretch, um, although the defense has just been kind of bad for the season. But, but yeah, you know, so I think that – I mean, I think it still works. And I, I don't, and I don't want to turn this into like a Chris Paul versus Russell Westwood thing. Cause we no, we, we've already had, done that plenty this season. <laughs> we've, already done, we've already done that, you know. But, but, yeah, man, I mean, it just requires a team acting as a unit. It looked like it was coming together right after the All-Star break. I, we still don't know if – that stretch that started with the Knicks was a fluke or what? I have no clue. Um, it could speak to the volatility of being, you know, as small as we are without as many good shooters as we need. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, if the, if they resume play in the playoffs tomorrow, for example, or next month or whatever, 
I think the Rockets have as good a shot as anyone to come out the West. Um, so, and part of that is the volatility, right? Is you know, if you get the hot Rockets, then you know, obviously they could beat anybody. But if you get the 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 Rockets that are shooting, you know, sub twenty percent from three or something like that, then it's you know, it's going to be a rough game to watch or a rough series to watch. Um, but to to circle things back to the Harden MJ comparison and to really to highlight some of the struggles that MJ faced, you know, and the criticisms that he got early in his career before the triangle, you know, it makes me think of all the arguments that we hear with Harden and about Harden, right. That he, you know, he puts up these great numbers, puts, puts up insane stats, but you know, he hasn't, he hasn't won anything yet. And obviously he got really, really close 17, 18 with Chris Paul as his running mate. But I can't help but think, and I, and I think back to all the time to that, that clip of, Harden, you know, talking it. I think he was talking. What was it? Uh, it was during the unguardable tour. I think it was during the All Star game with where he was like chatting with Steph, and he was basically saying like he doesn't want to play this way, like the the whole like ball dominant hero ball like that kind of game. That that's not his ideal way to play, and yet we haven't seen a, a noticeable change from the organization or from the coaching staff to you know, to basically build an offense or to have a, a themed offense that doesn't necessarily need the ball in Harden or Westbrook's hands at all times. And that's what we saw with the Bulls. We saw them take the ball out of MJ's hands and suddenly they were better off than they ever were. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's kind of similar to Doug, like, you know, I think you're getting it. Doug Collins sticking the ball in Mike's hands and just riding that horse. Uh, as far as he could compared to Phil Jackson with kind of a mentality switch, um, you know, going more team oriented and kind of enhancing everyone else's ability. And, you know, I've, I've grown tired of Harden. Uh, sorry. I've grown tired of Harden isolating uh, as much as he does. Obviously like sometimes it's a great shot when he's on. I mean, it's amazing. It's beautiful. I love it. But what he doesn't do enough for me is switch it up. You know, you miss two, you miss three step backs. Like, try something else, attack from a different spot on the floor. And I have not been able to figure out if that comes from Mike D'Antoni or if that's James Harden's preference or what. I used to think it's, it was a D'Antoni thing, but, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Harden could, Harden's got the ball in his hands. He can do whatever he wants with it, and he chooses to do what he does. So it's hard to not blame Harden. Um, you know, but I do think some type of philosophy switch is in order. Um, and I mean, I think that the Bulls are a great example. A lot, a lot of people, when we talk about it on Twitter, a lot of people say, you know, well, who would you hire? Who's available? You know, and I would point, I, oftentimes I point to Nick Nurse because he's the most recent example I can, uh, that I can think of. And I think I pointed out that the last, uh, the, the NBA, the head coach of the champion of the NBA since what? 2015, <clears throat> excuse me, has been a coach that was in his first gig um, as an NBA head coach. You know, Ty Lue, first time, or I'm sorry, Steve Kerr, first time. Ty Lue, that was his first head coaching gig. Nick Nurse, that was his first head coaching gig. You know, so don't be afraid to hire someone that is new and doesn't have experience. But as I was saying, Phil Jackson um, was an unknown, right? He was like an assistant. He had bounced around apparently in South America and then in like lower, I guess, I don't even know if they were professional leagues, but lower leagues. And, uh, and he embraced that, that new ideology from, and you guys will have to pardon me. I can't remember the, the other assistant coach's name, Tex, but, Tex winner. There we go. Tex winner. You know, he embraced that that offensive philosophy and he took that and put it to work. And obviously it paid dividends and at the time, you know, you would look at it and you'd think, okay, this is kind of crazy. You have the best player on the face of the planet, and yet you want to pull the ball out of his hands. But I think the thing that we see and we've, we've come to see a lot with, you know, the James Harden-led Rockets is that as good as he is, as phenomenal as he is at the game of basketball, everybody knows what's coming from the Rockets. Everybody knows the ball is going to be in Harden's hands, and it's going to be some, some level of iso ball or, you know, when they still had Capella, then it was going to be pick and roll to death. But everything is predictable. And it's a testament to Harden's greatness that everybody knows exactly what he's going to do, whether it's a, a step back three or driving all the way to the rim, you know, trying to create, content, create contact, get to the foul line, or just finish directly at the rim. It's a testament to his greatness that he, 
everybody knows exactly what he's going to do and he's still capable of doing it. But then you have these moments where, yeah, you know, he gets a little bit gassed or the defenses are, you know, tunneling in on him too hard or he just can't quite get it done. And I'm not calling him a choker. This isn't me calling him out like that. It's just saying, I would like some variation in the offense. You know, that's what made Golden State so deadly is because their backup plan was KD ISOs. But past that, they ran a legitimate offense for Steph and for Clay. 100%. I completely agree with that. Um, listen, I can't refrain from sounding like a boomer these days, so I guess I just have to embrace it. But Yeah, you're not a millennial anymore. You're a boomer. Sorry, man. That's right, that's right baby. Boomeroo. Um, but uh, this is what I was going to say. Basketball is not science. It is not math. Okay? Basketball is art. Like art, it can be influenced by science and it can be influenced by math. You know, you can be drawing something and you can, you can measure portions of it perfectly. Um, or you can, you know, record something, a song or something like that. And you can mess with the science or the sonics of it or whatever. But at the end of the day, you're still working with art. Okay. And, and art is up to you. So we can view the game of that. We can view the game of basketball as points per possession. What generates the most points per possession? Let's run that over and over and over. Like that's the best shot. Never switch, never vary. Um, but that can also work against you. And it also does not account for so many variables that are almost impossible to account for. You know, how many points per possession does Harden generate on that step back from that specific angle with that specific defender or someone of similar length and height after he's had X amount of steps and had to actually play defense on X amount of possession. We'll never know. Right. And that's why sometimes he goes six of 11 from three. And that's why sometimes he goes two of 17. And in the moments where it's most predictable, it's about what's about to happen. You know, unfortunately we've seen the lower end of that scale. Um, but if you're mixing things up, right. And there's movement and there's variation and you're kind of unpredictable. You can use the math and the science to influence what you're doing, but sometimes you look like you create, you know, you embrace your art form and you create. That's when you get the best version of whatever. Like MJ could go out there and drop 37 a game and he did. He can go out there and drop 35 a game and he did. His shot attempts come down, his points per game come down and other people increase across the board and all of a sudden they're a championship team. That's two I realize it's a convenient thing to say and it's a convenient correlation to make. So I'm not trying to exclusively rely on that, but the principle remains true. You know, once they, there's addition by subtraction with respect to Michael Jordan, right? Once you kind of rein him in just a little and you let everyone else flourish just a little, all of a sudden they become unstoppable, right? That could be the difference between 0 for 27 in game seven. You know, maybe, maybe those guys aren't just trained to jump shoot and then the nerves start hitting them. And then they start bricking and bricking and bricking. You know, maybe they have something else in the bag. They have confidence to go to something else in the bag when they need it. There's no way to account for that with statistics. There's no way to account for that with advanced statistics. That's why I get sometimes disrespectfully heated on Twitter, which is my bad. But, you know, I'll argue with someone and I'm just like, what are you talking about? Like, yes, that's what basketball reference says. Congratulations for, you know, finding that specific unique statistic and clicking a pre-made graph to alphabetizes it for you respect however what are you talking about you didn't see it you don't know what it is you didn't feel it what are you talking about you know and i just try to challenge people to really understand what they're saying when they make assertions about the specifically about the rockets you know when people laugh off the idea of a mid-range jumper every now and then or the idea of you know getting getting hardened or whoever else at a different angle on the court or a different spot on the court and then creating space in different ways like the triangle in the, in the last dance, you saw the simulation that they would draw. Like it creates space, you know. It got players that would ne would otherwise have never been remembered for anything, like Bill Wennington and you know Will Purdue and whoever else. Judd Bushler, shout out to Judd Bushler. Um, <laughs> it made these guys relevant in little tiny ways, you know, more than just spot up jump shooters. And I think that has a trickle down flow. So in different parts of the game, you know, to defense or whatever else. Like I said, basketball is art, and a lot of times art is created in a rhythm. And know? I want to I keep this topic going here in just a second, but we are right up against another break, so we'll keep this conversation going in just one second. But first, let me tell you guys about one of the most useful apps on my phone. 
Blinkist. You know, it, it's hard to find the time to sit down and read and learn more when you don't have the free time to do it, right? And, you know, some of us have a lot more free time right now, but others don't. You know, essential workers, if you're out there still working five days a week, you, you may not have the time to be able to, you know, better yourself through learning. And this app, Blinkist, actually solves that problem. So it's pretty unique, works on your phone, tablet, web browser. It takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. Basically, like Blinkist gives you unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books that you want, all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. You can go to Blinkist.com slash MBA and try it for free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I- N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash MBA to start your seven-day free trial. You'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash MBA. And we are back in here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball, chatting with Houston native Roosh Williams. So Roosh, here's my thing. You say basketball is art, and I agree with you. I'm right there with you. I, I, I would go... So far as to say that like I, when I watch basketball, when I want to talk about basketball, I'm like 60, 40, like I test and feel like is the 60 and then 40% is like the numbers, which is not like a clean 50, 50 divide. I do lean a little bit more. I test over everything. And this next thing, I don't know how much of the Phoenix Suns did you watch back in the day? Like the MDA, Steve Nash, Phoenix Suns. Quite a bit. It, this this version of this Rockets team with MDA when he came in and, you know, basically wanted to, you know, make James Harden, Steve Nash by putting the ball in his hands and, and having him orchestrate the entire offense, you know, from, from tip off till the final buzzer. It's never felt as fluid as the Steve Nash led sons. Does, does that, do you agree with that statement or no? Yes, because, um, we kind of grind you to death with the ISO as of, as of the last year, two years. Um, and they, they played a much prettier brand of basketball. Exactly. Uh, right. They didn't, because they didn't buy into exclusively the numbers that said threes, layups and dunks. And that's the, that's the one. That although, really- although if you, uh, I've heard from some of them, I've heard, I think from Steve, not personally, but like, you know, you've seen videos uh, from Steve Nash and Mike D'Antoni saying that they wish they would have gone full throttle with it. So I don't know. That's, and that's, that's a good point. But I think what we, I think some of the negative side effects that we are seeing from this Rockets team are the negative side effects of going full throttle with it is I think you can point to those Phoenix Suns teams and say that they absolutely should have won a chip or two based on how good they were, the collective talent on those teams. You know, you had the, the, the whole scoring table incident that just the the Spurs series and just you you look back at a lot of different reasons why those Suns teams never actually made it and were never able to like break the door down when they absolutely had the talent and the skill to do that and I just wish that this team would play a little bit more like those Phoenix Suns teams because they they did play a this this really beautiful free-flowing style of basketball where it really felt like on any given night any one of their guys could kill you. I'm telling you, you know, it could be Nash one night, it could be Stoudemire the next night, uh, Barbosa the next night, Rajah Bell could go off. Like, I'm talking like those teams really felt like any single individual on that team had a chance to really go off. And it's because it felt like everybody was getting, you know, an equal opportunity to play the game of basketball rather than just one or two guys creating for everybody else. Yeah, I mean, I will, I will say I do think Mike Gansone is one of the unluckiest coaches ever. Um, Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. He's been so close so many times. Like he should have, you know, like I said, Rocket should have got it in 2018. Um, The Suns, I mean, with the Suns, he had Joe Johnson getting injured in the West Conference, Western Conference finals. Yeah. There's Uh, one. He had the incident with um, Robert Ory and I think Amari, right? So he got ejected and missed the next game. Huge difference. Uh, Amari tore his ACL and missed the whole season and he still made the Western Conference finals. I think they lost in six, maybe to uh, the Mavericks when the Mavericks went on to get beat by the Heat. Um, so he, like, his legacy could be much different because he should have gotten at least one by now. And I think he really has gotten the short end of the stick 
So that's worth noting. But to your point, yes, um, those sons had, they had, they could get you from any angle, man. Um, you know, if it wasn't Nash driving and knifing, it was Amari cutting and dunking. If it wasn't that, it was Sean Marion. If it wasn't that, Rajah Bell would hit big shots. Dude, shout, time out. shout out to the Matrix for, A, one of the greatest nicknames of all time. And then, two, just I really loved him as a player because he was that guy that, you know, obviously never really got, like, you know, he wasn't Nash. He wasn't Amari. He was, you know, probably the third best guy. You, you, you'd say probably third best on those Suns teams. Maybe, maybe fourth, but, like. No, he's third. I just I love Sean Marion. I'm just putting that out there. Him and his funky sh- shooting form. Yeah, yeah. No, he was. I mean, he was a huge part of their success. He was like a diet Scotty Pippen. Um, and you know, he is what you hope. Probably with a different coach and philosophy that believes in getting players the ball, everyone the ball in different spots. Um, he's what you hope Robert Covington could become. Um, That's a good comp. Not that, yeah. Not that he has the same skill set as far as ball handling goes, at least from what I've seen. Um, but, you know, the, the body type is there. The, the basically physical outline is there. The skill set's there for the most part. Missing some creation ability, unless Robert Covington's got something in the bag that we don't know about. And that's the um, thing is sometimes we just don't know with these players because we haven't seen it, because we haven't had a chance to see it, right? And I like to point to there have been a couple games this season uh, just this season specifically. I'm not even going to go further back than that. But there have been a couple games this season, right, where we had, you know, Harden or Westbrook missing time or both of them missing time for two games, for the uh, the Pelicans game and for the Jazz game, where suddenly we saw an offense that wasn't predicated on one person dominating the ball while they were on the court. You know, the Pelicans game, yeah, they obviously lost. They collapsed in the fourth quarter. That fourth quarter is where your superstar should be able to take over the game. That's where the ISO becomes, yeah, like let's ISO the hell out of James Harden for the final six minutes of the game because that's, you know, we know that that's going to work. Like, yeah, I'll be okay with Daniel House taking a, a shot to tie the game if he's open. But yeah, you want the ball in your best player's hands. But that game and then the Jazz game where Eric Gordon went off for 50, those were two games where you saw a collective group effort being played as opposed to it just, you know, this team living and dying by one guy. Well, and that's why I say I don't know <clears throat> if it's D'Antoni who, when he has Harden and Russ, he's like, okay, I'm riding them. Or if it's Harden who's like, nah, we're going to play my way. Or if it's a combination of both. I don't know. And those games are the reason for it. Because I was very critical of D'Antoni. Then you see those games and you're like, well, this is obviously some portion of his offense. So where is this? And why yeah, the, dude, the dribble handoff, the cutting, just the, the, yeah. the real team play, you know, it was honestly like I've gone back and watched that Pelicans game a couple times. And obviously the fourth quarter is like depressing to watch because you just you see this 11 point lead slowly slip away and like nobody's able to nobody wants to step up to be the guy to like finish finish things off. And that part kind of sucked. But like the first three quarters were great to watch. It was fun basketball. It was really pretty basketball to watch. And I think that's something that's gotten away is like, I still like watching the Rockets and I love watching James Harden and Russ torch other players, but like, it's not beautiful basketball. Like, I'm sorry. It's just not. It's really not. Um, Like when shots are falling, especially some of the difficult shots, it is pretty awesome. It's an awesome experience, but objectively, like when people hate on watching the Rockets, I get it. Cause there are times where I'm just like, God, what are you doing? Stop shooting. Stop stepping back. Stop, you know, do X, do Y. And you know what, what confuses me is I know Mike D'Antoni is a good offensive coach. I know he's got a lot in his bag. There's really no denying that. Um, but people praise the Rockets for, like, D'Antoni's offense, and it's just not that complicated. It's not that complex. Even the stuff we do off the ball, it's like someone crashing into the middle, rubbing off a screen, faking one direction or something, rubbing off a screen, and then, like, another screen, and then catching and shooting at the top of the key. Like, okay, that's cool. It's like a double screen with a little rub off. Like, all right. It's not that difficult or complicated. It's not this insane offense. It's not like two steps ahead. You know, it's just getting one person, a semi open shot, like running, stopping, catching, shooting, kind of changing direction. So it takes a really talented shooter to hit that shot, you know, and that's it. It's like, give me some more. Like Daniel, Daniel House, when he's off and he's just being, a, he's got a slow release, right? We all know that. So he's not the best person to just be a spot up shooter because he needs a lot of space to get that shot off with confidence. And if his hitch, if there's any glitch in his hitch, he usually misses the shot. Um, when he pulls Dude, it off. Were, you, were you trying to drop a bar for us there? Glitch in his hitch? <laughs> Calm down, my guy. 
<laughs> but when Watch he gets out. To, when he gets the release completely followed through in rhythm, like he can hit it, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's rare that he gets that clean, super clean look, but he's extremely athletic. So why don't we use, like there've been a couple of plays we talked about this on your podcast where he comes, you have Russ penetrating, attacking from the right wing. And then Daniel House comes from the baseline for the alley, for the alley-oop when the help de- uh, defender comes. Like that's a great example of a guy you can use in different ways, but we just use him as a spot of shooter. And it's sad to see. It's not pretty basketball, and I don't think it's smart basketball either. Yeah, and I, I, I caught some flack for saying this the other day on Twitter, um, but just talking about the fact that, you know, we, we're discussing this whole, like, does Harden need a lob threat, right? Does, you know, does he need something else? And I, I do think he does. I think he needs – he's not – built for the five out spacing as much as say Russ is like it's obviously built to optimize Russ and there's something missing in James Harden's offensive repertoire since going five out since losing that consistent lob threat of Clint Capella and I don't even think it's necessarily as much the lob threat as I do think it's the ability to pick and roll without the sorry, without the opposing team being able to switch as easily. Because the thing we saw time and time again with Harden and with Capella in the pick and roll is other teams don't want to switch their big onto James Harden because that's, you know, barbecue chicken, right? Harden's just going to ISO him on the perimeter and it's going to result in him blowing by the big or getting a step back three. And if they don't switch the big though, and if the defender's having to fight over the, the pick, then Harden's getting you know this kind of free drive to the basket where the big gets caught in no man's land and either has to choose between stopping Harden's drive or falling back and stopping the lob to Capella. And that was, you know, even though they spammed pick and roll to death, that watching that offense and watching all the like quick decision-making moments from Harden and from Capella and how they were running that pick and roll together and really got it you know, perfected over the years was great. Like I liked watching that and it was interesting and engaging. And I feel like he's missing that part of his game. And I kind of argued that, you know, there are other guys we've seen it a little bit with Jeff green, right? Where they can use some other guys to, you know, set screens for Harden and roll hard to the basket and, you know, kind of just to create a little bit more of that separation for him so that he's not constantly fighting one-on-one fighting, you know, in the isolation, trying to create for himself, you know, and have that explosive first step to try and get to the ba- get to the bucket. You know, it's it's so it's got to be so much work. It's got to be exhausting, like every play. Yeah, I mean, you know, look at Michael Jordan, right? In the Last Dance, like he would wear out. You know, everyone wears out. I think we we or a lot of people underestimate how taxing it is to get the right shot when you're just relying on isolation. That's why, like you said, having a pick and roll option helps because first of all, it gives you a variety in your attack and in the defense. But second, um, it's an easy bucket, right? It's an easy play to run. It it just, it it makes things easier. And I think the name of the game at the NBA level is getting easy buckets, right? If you can, if obviously there's more to the game, you got to play defense, but if you have a a surefire way of getting easy buckets, excuse me, then you have a a better chance of winning the game as simple and dumb as that sounds. That's why posting up big men was was so valuable because it was the easiest way to get buckets. Well, the Rockets, drive to the lane, kick for three, and we get easy buckets. But what it takes for James Harden to do that over and over and over uh, is a lot, and it's taxing and it's difficult. And that's why sometimes he just, you know, he's like, oh, I don't want to drive and step back, you know. And, like, as a, as a guy that's confident in his shot, he really believes he's going to hit that shot every time. And to his credit, we've seen him do it a million times. So I understand. But, um, yeah, his option is like, okay, let me expend a lot of energy and make a tough, you know, physically taxing drive to the rim where I may or may not get the foul. Now he doesn't even have the lob threat. Um, even when we had Capella, it felt like a lot of times late in games, we'd go away from the pick and roll. Um, and sometimes you'd even see D'Antoni bench Capella. So, But yeah, easy buckets. The lob threat, the pick and roll was easy for Harden. And obviously all the things that fed into that with Capella gone, with like big stepping to Harden and making it easy to flip it over and you know so on and so forth. I also think that Harden is a little short like compared to a guy like LeBron who can make it look easy. Um, and when I say make it look easy, I mean driving to the, to the lane and then rising up and passing out of it and finding the right shooters or angles. Harden's like 6'5", right? He doesn't really elevate. Um, so when he gets to the middle, having Capella was just, it was easy. It was just like, again, back to easy, right? He could just flip it up. Like didn't have to jump, didn't have to expend any energy, just flip it up. And Capella was right there. But when he does not have that option, everyone knows what the other two options are. And so they can fill those lanes, right? The other two options are going to be 
left hand across to the corner or he kicks it out to his left side. And so they can, they can play those passing lanes and they can, um, you know, not use their defenders to crowd the space where Capella is because he's obviously not there. But yeah, I think they could use Jeff Green for that. I wish they would. There have been times where we, I've seen it a couple of times. I've seen the Jeff Green pick and roll and it looked good. He's athletic enough to go up there and get it. So, you know, I wish we'd see more of that. I wish they'd use Jeff Green not to continue with the Phoenix Suns, but he could be a very, very diet, very junior Amari, like in spurts. You know what I mean? Like go get a quick eight and five from Jeff. Like, like diet, low cow, like whatever you want to call it, like throw all the different abbreviations. No, I, I see what you're saying. And I get that. And, you know, because like, what the Suns did, what Steve Nash did a lot that we don't do at all is he attacked the baseline. Okay. When you attack the baseline, you make defenders like when defenders shift their eyes, shift their bodies, even for a split second, someone like Jeff Green, boom, rolls in, slips in, catch, dunk. Like, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying post. Nash was also absolutely the master of keeping his dribble alive. I don't think I've ever seen anybody else be able to keep a dribble alive better than Steve Nash. And obviously, I'm younger. So, you know, there's a chunk of NBA that I'm missing out on. But like, dude. Chris Paul could have. And we never tried it with Chris Paul. That, you know, I'll, I'll give you Chris Paul. Chris Paul had a knack for that too. Uh, you know, I just, I, I always picture to me one, one of like my favorite, like just basketball memories, even though I've, you know, grown, born and bred Rockets fan, but like just as a fan of basketball is, you know, watching Steve Nash do that little like probe through the lane. Nothing's there. Okay. You know, the big didn't pick me up on the switch, whatever. Okay. Let me just turn around and hit this little like 10 footer, just bank it off the glass, you know, just a little 100%. kiss right off the backboard. It's, a, it's amazing. Imagine if James Harden would do that. Like, just a little bit, you know, like the angles you create when you hit the baseline specifically, you make people rotate their hips usually to look at the baseline and like they, they're subconsciously putting their back to the player. So then you have cuts to the basket open, slips, rolls, you have people who could pop for open threes, like the Rockets could abuse with that. But we just go with the same thing over and over from the same angle over and over. It seems like we run our more complicated, sophisticated plays earlier in games instead of late in games, like late in games, we just rely on what they know which is hard and go to work and we're here if you kick it um you know and that's why you get the results you get and i don't think you're going to see something different uh, uh as long as mike d'antoni's on the sideline so yeah well and we've got a we've got an entire off season whenever that does roll around to potentially you know speculate on what's going to happen with d'antoni with his contract and we'll have plenty of that here at locked on rockets but Coming up, I want to chat with you, Roosh, about some of the greatest moments overall in Rockets history. So we're going to brainstorm that coming up so you guys don't go anywhere. And we are back in here at Locked On Rockets. You're a daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day, chatting with Roosh Williams. So Roosh, you know, recently I kind of, we did one of these, you know, we did one of these pods or a series of pods where we were kind of revisiting some of the, you know, best seasons in Rockets history and kind of just revisiting some other people's fandoms, talk, you know, to Ben DuBose, talked with Michael Connor from Sports Talk 790. And in some of those, we talked about some of the, you know, iconic moments throughout Rockets history. But I want to, you know, chat with you about this now and see some of the moments that stand out to you throughout you know, your Rockets fandom and throughout Rockets history, which obviously, right, championships have to be up there. So I feel like those are kind of easy pickings. So I'm going to take away like winning the title as answers one and two. Like those are de facto like answers one and two to me. Am I, am I wrong there? No, of course. Can I run through, can I just run through my list of on-court moments that stand out? Absolutely. Go for it. In sequential order. Um, Oh, in sequential. Do you have these tiered? Do you already know like in order what your favorite moments are? No, I'm just going off the top of my head. Okay. Okay. In in numeric, like, you know, by year. Okay. I Um, hear you. Okay. We can, we, can, we can talk tiers afterwards. But okay, if, for uh, sure. If you disagree. So, uh, let's see. Ralph Sampson, 86 Western Conference Finals. The shot, um, which if you don't remember, do you remember that? I do. Well, I, it's not that I remember it because I wasn't alive for it, but I've seen the highlights and I know of right. it. So, I'm, I'm right. aware. Yes. Right, right. Okay. That, um, Elijah Wan's block uh, in – Game six of the '94 Finals on Starks. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mario Elie kiss of death. Um, <laughs> I'll throw this one in there. You can, you know, we can reject it. Nick Anderson missing four free throws. That's like iconic. 
Um, it's like insanely iconic. It's not really the Rockets, but you know, happened against the Rockets. Kenny Smith shot to tie that game up. Um, Duke to Duke. Let's see. T Mac on Sean Bradley, and then the game winner later in that game. Okay. In- incredible, incredible, dude. I'll, I'll never forget. Yeah. Now we're now happened. we're getting now we're getting into you know the Rockets memories that I am allowed to share, and this is good. All right. Cool. There, there, you, there you go. There you go. Uh, I'll never forget that. Um, do, 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 let's see, T Mac. Uh, oh, the twenty-two game win streak. Oh, the thirteen and thirty-three. I was gonna, I was gonna come all the way to California and slap the hell out of you if you missed <laughs> on thirteen and thirty-five. I Sorry. swear. Sorry. Yeah, that, I mean that was insane, unbelievable. The, the Rockets have been known for all these like random little things that were just amazingly awesome. That being one of them. Um, let's see. The, yeah, the twenty-two game win streak. Uh, Steve Novak's three to keep it alive. That was insane. Um, also, I've mentioned it a handful of times on here, but I like to plug this. Um, I was at the 22nd win, and I love that. Like, that's hands down one of my favorite Rockets memories ever. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, dude. Uh, Ray for Alston uh, dribbling the ball out when they get number 22. Oh, dude. The, yeah. The, it, hands down one of the most iconic, uh, like, skip to my Lou videos because I, I, I remember because if you go to YouTube and you look for it it's the clutch fans video is like the top search result and it's got like a little bit of like music edited over it with like the whistling it's just oh it's perfect that's amazing yeah um Sasha Vujicic <clears throat> tried to fight him or push him or something like that uh as he's dribbling the clock out to get number 22 that was pretty awesome um <clears throat> let's see do 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 oh uh 2015, game six, fourth quarter, Josh Smith and Corey Brewer. That's uh, yep. that's their moment in history. That that's that goes in line with like random things the Rockets did that are just awesome that like didn't lead to a championship, but it's just an awesome moment in basketball. Minnesota Timberwolves legend Corey Brewer. Sorry, <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. that's true. Uh, CP3 dropping 40 to close out the Jazz was pretty awesome. Um. And I think that might be it. There's Gordon shot game five. I think was it game five? I think it was four. I think it was game five. The three, the three pointer from the top of the key uh, against the Warriors, 2018. Yes, game five. Yeah, so that's like 15 moments. But you know, take your pick. They're all awesome. Yeah. So I mean, and so you get these, you get these like incredible moments, and I think that. It's important because one, like these are, it's, it's great that we have these moments to like look back on because I'm a big proponent of the fact that, you know, we were talking about rings culture, but I'm a big proponent of the fact that rings culture isn't like rings aren't everything, right? Sports are here to be like an escape. And that's part of the reason, like I, I meant to mention this early on, but like, I don't know about you, but I have like, I know that it's like a very real like thing, but like, I feel like I have like seasonal affective disorder, but when, but like for basketball season. Like when basketball isn't around, like my life is like legitimately worse. And then basketball comes back and like I perk up and like I'm just a better, like happier person overall when basketball's around. I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's... You know, um, I feel the same way when I can play. Uh, uh, I do miss the, I do miss the Rockets in sports for sure. And it sucks that we're losing a year of, you know, Harden and Westbrook's prime or a, a portion of it or whatever. Potentially losing. I'm still being yeah. hopeful. Yeah, I'm not. Unfortunately, <laughs> but, um, but you know, as much joy as the Rockets bring me, I'm too attached, man. So they put me in many bad moods as you can probably tell from my tweets. That's fa- uh, That's fair. But like, even and see, that's my thing is like, even the bad moods, like even when I'm in a bad mood, I'm just happy that I'm getting to talk about sports. Like, e- even if I got to do like silly stuff, like after the Knicks loss, doing like the, the five stages of grief, like on this podcast, like having to try and find ways to cope with the bad losses. You know, that's, you know, it's a community feel where we're all like, we're all upset about the bad loss together. And you know, so without going down that, that, you know, path too far and kind of focusing back on the, the, the iconic moments, the greatest moments from over the years, I think too, right. There's like the significant moments that happen off the court, which obviously like off the top of my head, we've got the move from San Diego to Houston is like a big one. Like that's got to count for something. Um, drafting a one has to be up there. Because that obviously changed the course of the entire franchise by drafting, you know, one of the greatest bigs to ever play the game. Uh, trading for James Harden, uh, and I mean, there's there's so many different 
things that happened off the court. Trading oh, man, for T Mac, drafting Yao, yeah, like trading T Mac. I was about to say trading T Mac was exciting. Trading didn't I, yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want to glaze over that. I just you know I think you know hit the nail on the head with the Harden thing because you know he's arguably not arguably he is right he he has to be the second best player in franchise history. There is no argument there. Yeah, in my okay. opinion. All right. Yeah. And, you know, I, the, the thing is, too, is I the T-Mac trade, I remember being excited for it because that was like – because I had just really started focusing in on, like, basketball right around when I was, like, probably about seven or eight. Like, it took me a little bit longer. Like, I wasn't, like, from, like, three or four, like, in love with basketball, but about seven or eight is when I started focusing in on it. And so, like, the T-Mac trade is one of, like, the – biggest like earliest things that I remember with the Rockets and I was a total like I was basically like beam a thug but like a kid obviously I didn't know the numbers but like I was all like wrapped up in like the trades for players and how that worked and like who was going to get drafted and all this stuff and that was like my enjoyment of the game from like an early age and then it transitioned into like actually appreciating the game of basketball but if we're having to like pick the best moments out of some of the ones that we just listed off how are we like, what would be, is there a way to pick a consensus number one out of some of those moments that you listed? I think a lot of Rockets fans, if you ask me to pick one singular moment, and I think I would pick this as my moment, uh, is the kiss of death. I think that's just the, the sickest Rockets moment. It was a backbreaker, game winner, championship extender, uh, pinnacle moment of like this historic for the city run it, brand, it branded run. the whole city i mean that's where clutch city came from so you know what i'm saying i mean I, I just can't think of a better moment than than that um even when i watch it today and uh, i still get like the same jolt of just like yes dude yes that's amazing all right <laughs> you know, and, so. and you know and it's you're right because you know watching and that was one of the games that we did the live rewatch of on like the locked on rockets discord and everything and you know there were lots of people that had never watched this game before you know and so getting to experience oh. that with a group of people it was awesome. Like they, they obviously knew what was coming, but you know, that's the thing about sports is being able to do it together with other people and appreciate you know, these amazing moments. Well, I just always try to think like, okay, how would we feel if that, like, how would we feel if the Rockets were down? I mean, first of all, we know what it feels like to come back from three one. Uh, and like, like this generation of Rockets fans, even, even ones that weren't, you know, alive or for fans of the, uh, of the team previously, you know, even like for the younger, uh, for the younger fans. Right. So like we know what it comes feels like to come back from three one, and we watch those highlights all the time, and they're they're just as awesome every single time, right? Absolutely. So imagine, so imagine if it was the same thing, you know, we're against the conference rival, whoever you want to pick, Utah, Golden State, whatever, Spurs, I don't know, whoever the modern day equivalent would be, um, and Portland maybe. And PJ Tucker, Rockets were down 3-1 as the road team had to play game seven on the road. And it's the Rockets, so you expect them to blow it. Um, and PJ Tucker cans a corner three to put them ahead to win the game and looks over at their bench and, you know, kisses, blows a kiss to them. Like, how would you feel? We'd be going nuts. Twitter would be going out of its mind, you know? Um, and then if that moment obviously led to a championship, like, it would be insane, man, it, you know? And so... So yeah, I just try to think back to that moment. Um, for a lot of people too, like, you know, there, there's there's so many people out there who, you know, they, and for good reason, right, is, is social media does consume a lot of our everyday lives. And, you know, if you use it too much, right, it, it can be a little unhealthy. But on the flip side, social media provides us like a chance to connect with others like never before to where you're right. Like if, if Twitter had been around back in the day when, when Mario hit that shot, like just I'm... I, I cannot imagine like that's that's all anybody would talk about for for days forever and then to cap that off with you know another championship like it's just it would be an iconic moment and it is an iconic moment but just thinking of it like to me and obviously this is different because it's LeBron but like it'd be it almost be like the block right like it'd be something like that to that level of gravity getting played over and over or brought up over and over and over again as like the moment that sealed you know that team's chances to win basically. Yes, hundred um, percent. And it was it was a moment like that, you know. So, so, yeah, like I said, if that happened, like everyone loves game winners, everyone loves game winners in Game Seven, and everyone really loves game winners in Game Seven on the road. So, from the underdog, nonetheless, six seed, 
So right, really, and just a team that a team that had the the true, really the true meaning of like an underdog team from top to bottom. Like, yeah, that's why they're my. That's why that's like you know, just one of the best championship runs of all time. It's the only six seed to ever do it, you know, uh, which I think it often gets overlooked when people talk about the Rockets titles. But but yeah, man, I just don't think there's a bigger shot in franchise history than that, or a bigger moment uh, on the court, unless you'd argue that. Um, Elijah wanted to block on Starks was it it's just a little less you know climactic it's like a little more for the pure a little bit a little bit more under the radar probably but um, right right and so th- this and speaking of you know uh, anticlimactic or whatever but um, I'm th- and this this question may not land properly but if you had so that was the moment that you said that you feel like most Rockets fans would pick if you had to pick your personal favorite Rockets moment, what would it be? And it sucks because if, if you just pick the kiss of death too, then that's going to suck. But like, <laughs> I, won't hold, I won't hold it against you because we just spent plenty of time talking about it. But if you had to pick your personal favorite Rockets moment from all of your years of watching Rockets basketball, what would it be? Um, unfortunately, it is the kiss of death. But I'll say that just for fun to pick a different moment, um, T-Max dunk on Sean Bradley had me out of my mind. I cannot describe uh, the feeling that I had when T-Mac dunked on Sean Bradley. Like, that was amazing. I felt like, oh, my God, Houston's back on the map when he did that. Um, so it would be anything from either that, 13 and 33, or the comeback, the 2015 comeback. The 2015 comeback was awesome. Uh, I mean, there was nothing like that either. And it was more meaningful because it was in the play. You know, I, I, I'll say – I'll switch my answer. I'll say the 2015 comeback. You okay. Know? Yeah, all or, right. And I can, I can get, I can get Brewer, with that. Corey Brewer and Josh Smith combining for what was it like 29 or something in the fourth? Something um, in, I can't remember the numbers right off the top of my head, but I, I can tell you exactly where I was at. I was at the Chewies on Westheimer and Kirby watching that game with a bunch of other Rockets fans who thought it was game over. And I kept telling them, don't like, no, like it's not game. Over. Like they're, they're still in this, like this team can start burying threes at any moment and watching that comeback happen with a bunch of other people that were like drunk as hell in a bar like just freaking out about this comeback was one of my favorite Rockets memories. I had never, I never at any point, well, I'll just describe it like this. I was on my couch watching it by myself, just sitting there. And, uh, you know, they go down, I think Dwight, I can't remember, but I think Dwight got a technical in the third. And at like the moment where we were like gradually kind of inching back and then it kind of shifted momentum and gave them, I think, three points. Um, and then when Blake Griffin hit that, like 180 and one, he does like this, I, I can't remember. I think he jumps and does a 180 and just flips it up over his head and gets fouled and it goes in Yeah. and that happened. And I think it was 84, 68, maybe at that point, late in the third. And when that happened, I was like, okay, well, we're about to get blown out in game six to get bounced from the playoffs. Cause that's what we do. So here we go. You know, and then I remember when Terrence Jones, I think he, I think he hit the three. At he the hit the three. Court. He kind of like, he walked it up the court, like, or like got, or got like the, the, like a uh, push ahead pass or whatever. And just kind of casually like walked into a three. Yeah. Yeah. I think, he, I think he cut it to like 92 to 80 or something like that. 90, 78, something like that. And uh, I remember when he hit that, I was like, huh, okay. Well, they needed that, but I still didn't think they'd come back. And then it just started happening, you know? And even, even when we took the lead, I think when I think it was on a Josh Smith like bounce pass to Corey Brewer in transition. Even when we took the lead, I was like, nah, there's no way. I remember not feeling secure or safe until I think Jason Terry canned the three to make it 111, 102. And I think that was like the moment where I was just like, yo, we're about to win. We're actually about to win. Like, whoa, we're getting game seven in Houston. Like, I couldn't believe it. You know, I just couldn't. I, I, mean, I don't know. It, it really is one of those like, you know, it's it's kind of we're going back to cliches now but like anything can happen like the nba is that sport where like literally anything can happen where the game is not over until it is actually over and for anybody that i'm ever that i've ever tried to teach about basketball or you know because people like everybody that knows me in my like everyday life they know me as the basketball guy like everybody knows how insane i am about basketball and so I've had people over the years, they come to me and they're like, Hey, I, I want to get into basketball or, you know, my, my boyfriend's really into the Rockets and, you know, could you like, you know, maybe show me some games that I should watch or something or whatever, just let's hang out and catch a game, things like that. 
I always start people off that know nothing about basketball. Like one, like I kind of run through the basics with them, but I always sit them down and show them 13 and 35. Like I show them that video as like an indoctrination into what is cap- what is possible in an NBA game and just how quickly something that seemed so doom and gloom can suddenly become an iconic moment in NBA history. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously nothing like it. Um, it's like one of the single greatest displays of burst momentum scoring ever, if not the single greatest display of it. So, um, and to do it against the Spurs, you know, felt like, extra good, right? <laughs> like just right. It's like you know, you thought the game was over because this stuff never happens, and then all of a sudden, he hits a couple, and you're just like, well. <laughs> you, your eyes start to kind of perk up. You're like, huh, this 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 might be something here, <laughs> right? You're like, okay, maybe. Um, and then Devin Brown falls, and you're just like, no way. Oh my God, no foul! I thought they were gonna call foul, and uh, you know, and you just boom. Oh, and on the inbound pass. Um, oh, the five. Yeah, the 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 thing. The almost. It basically. It it probably was five seconds, but whatever. Probably, but even if it wasn't, like it was about to get stolen or go back court. Um, you know, and just to get that, and then like the double pump. You know, the double pump side shoulder release, like that went in, like what? with with who else but Tim Duncan draped all over him. I mean, just like come on, like you can't write a better like storybook ending to that game than what actually happened. Unreal, man. That's why when people dog T Mac. Um, and I got to go here in a second, but when people dog T-Mac, that's why I, I lay off of them or I lay off of T-Mac for it. Cause man, I remember when he had it all together, he was a force. He was insane, man. He carried some very low talent to much higher expectations than they ever should have had. He the really conversation, had the conversation was there at one point about who, you know, who was Kobe better was between him and Kobe. And unfortunately we saw the, the injuries kind of derail Trace McGrady, but I used to be on realgm.com arguing hard, like, yo, T-Mac. Take a look sure. at this guy. Yeah. No. All right. Well, Hey man, we'll, we'll get you out of here. I know you got to go. Um, before we get you out of here, you know, the drill, if you want to let everybody know where they can find you. Yeah, man. Twitter. Just follow me on Twitter. That's really all I use. Roosh Williams, R-O-O-S-H, Williams. Um, we don't have sports, so I'm not tweeting about all that much, but I am arguing about Michael Jordan. So if you want to argue about Michael Jordan, you hit me up because I'll do it. All right, man. I appreciate you taking the time to sit here and chat with us today. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. It's always fun. All right. One more time again for Roosh Williams. We love having him on the pod, but I think that's where we will wrap things up for today. So as always, thank you all so much for listening. And we look forward to having you back right here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball.